Good evening. It's an immense joy to be back with you all. Uh, several of you have asked about Hillary and the kids. They're doing well. Uh, I wasn't able to bring them this time, but, but Lord willing, next time they will be uh, back. Uh, we miss you. Uh, we thank and pray for you often. We are thankful for you. You have all blessed us immensely through your prayers, through your calls, your notes, uh, even financially. And so thank you. It is, it is our hope that uh, in some way we may be able to be a blessing in return. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. And this is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a festival of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, uh, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord will endure forever. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are a needy people. We are a suffering people, a stumbling people. And we need your word. By your spirit, may conviction come upon us where needed. And where encouragement is needed, may our heads be lifted up to see the Lord Jesus, risen, ascended, and glorified. And may we find comfort in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
considered to be one of the greatest novelists in, in American modern history is Cormac McCarthy. Several of his writings are incredibly dark and brutal. It's not for the faint of heart. But in those books, there lies at times some very moving, some very deep and even beautiful writing. One example comes from his Western, All the Pretty Horses, and in it he writes, The closest bonds we will ever know are bonds of grief. The deepest community, one of sorrow. McCarthy is not a believer, but this thought is not too far estranged from Machen's line that Christianity is a religion of the broken heart. What we find in our text is nothing short of the power of the Son of God to heal and to save. But in between lies the reality of suffering, of pain, and sorrow. This is of encouragement to us as believers. Why? Because in these moments, the Lord meets us. John 5 comes off the heels of Jesus' second sign, a healing of the Roman official's son. And sometime after that hearing, he went south from Galilee, but then as commonly put in the Gospels, he went up to Jerusalem. But his purpose for going to Jerusalem is not just so that he can be a good practicing Jew, making pilgrimage to the holy city. What is he seeking to do? He's seeking to reveal his identity. And that's what we're going to consider this evening. And we'll look at that through three points. One, the Sabbath healing. Two, the Sabbath controversy. And three, the Son of God. We'll begin with our first point, the Sabbath healing. Our text begins with John setting the scene for the, the healing of the disabled man. We're near the Sheep Gate, It's in the northeast side of Jerusalem. And around it, there were several shaded areas. And in those spaces, there are several individuals there with many afflictions, various ailments, those without sight, those who couldn't walk, some who can't even move. We might find people struggling with similar afflictions today, perhaps in the city, hiding from the elements under a bridge, perhaps closer to home in our neighborhoods. Just like today, these individuals are considered the outcasts of their city, of Jerusalem. And among this group lies our unnamed man. How can we summarize this man's life? In short, it's a life of suffering. We are not told the exact illness that this man has, but based on the nature of Christ's healing, it's most likely that he was a paralytic. But regardless of the exact affliction, John wants us to know something about this man. He makes this point clear. And what is it? He was in this state for 38 years. Was this all he's known? Or did he grow up a healthy boy? able to run, play with his siblings, help his parents around the house, who then, in a freak accident or in some unknown illness, then lost his ability to walk. We simply don't know. 
But we can't deny that this man has experienced suffering. And there is physical pain that comes with disability. And some of you may be familiar with that. The pain in your back that just doesn't go away, that's not allowing you to accomplish those tasks that you once did. The increasing loss of uh, uh, control of parts of your body that do not allow you to do those things that you were accustomed to doing. But that's just one side of it. There is physical pain that accompanies disability, but there's also the emotional pain, the mental pain that comes from it as well. To give a perspective on living with disability, Johnny Erickson Tata writes of of her being filled with this sense of longing. A longing for uh, her, her earlier stage of life when she was able to experience the simple pleasures of a body that worked the way that it was intended. There is multifaceted pain as people struggle and wrestle with the fact that our world is affected by the fall, and that includes our very own bodies. You may not experience this firsthand, but perhaps you know others who do. You might be a caretaker for a loved one, and you see the pain on their face. The man in our story bears that same look. He carries with him the physical scars of his body's breakdown, and he carries with him the emotional pain and emotional wounds of no one being there for him. Whether there was no one there for him or no one left does not make much of a difference in this case because his hopelessness is made readily apparent in what he says in verse 7. And what does he say? I have no one. I have no one to help me. But brothers and sisters, he does. The disabled man does not have a loved one to get him to the water, which many believed had some healing components. They believed that they would help him of his affliction. But who is he speaking with? With Jesus. The same Jesus who earlier in this gospel turned water into wine and healed the Roman official's son. Jesus did not approach this man out of mere curiosity. He did not come to this man with just a general sense of pity. But what does our text tell us? Jesus knew that this man was suffering and for how long. He did not first have to inspect the paralytic and then realized that he was afflicted for this, by, uh, by this affliction for some time. This was a supernatural knowledge. Jesus saw the man, and he knew. And with supernatural knowledge, he also had supernatural power to do something about it. And thus, in Jesus' question, Jesus is not giving him a hypothetical situation, as if he's saying, wouldn't it be nice if you were to, 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 be, to be healed today? No. In the words that Jesus speaks, he is giving him a real and sincere offer of rest. 
This poor man was asked if he wanted to be made well by the only one who was able to make him well. But the paralytic still believed that the only way for him to be healed was to go into these waters. Remarkably, after this man's lukewarm response, what does Jesus do? But he proceeds to heal anyways. He commands him to take up his mat and to walk. And the man responds immediately by getting up, taking his mat, by beginning to walk. What a remarkable and an undeniable, a life-changing healing that came from the words of Jesus Christ. And, and John does not tell us when this happened in terms of the time of year. He speaks of a festival, but we don't know which festival. But what does he tell us? We find this in, in verse 9. He gives us a key detail. He gives us the day of the week. Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And this is a significant point, not only because of the way that it advances our narrative this evening, but because of the theological significance that is found in this healing, in this moment in time. As I mentioned earlier, what the paralytic received was an offer of rest. On the Sabbath, his healing was a glimpse of God's eternal Sabbath rest. This miracle was a breakthrough into this world, the heavenly realities of the kingdom of God and its ways. It showed a preview of the ultimate victory over sin and the effects of sin, which impacts even the body. An encounter like this, therefore, cannot just be brushed aside. It cannot be ignored. The healed man must do something about this. He must respond. In this healing, the man should have realized that the kingdom of God had come to him then and there. And so what is the appropriate response? It would be faith, repentance, and adoration of the one who healed him. And we'll come back to this point as we consider the following section, the Sabbath controversy. The Sabbath controversy. So following our healing, we are introduced to a new set of characters. John calls them the Jews. And just briefly speaking, John is not being anti-Semitic here. John himself is a Jew. So what is he referring to? When he speaks of the Jews in his gospel, he is referring to those Jewish religious leaders, the movers and shakers of Jerusalem, and all those Jews who follow them. These leaders, we know this from Matthew 23, 4, are crippling weights. They place a heavy burden on themselves, but also on those around them. They have no interest in recognizing that the kingdom of God had come in by way of this healing. They would rather see the healed man back on his mat. Listen to the response to the healing in verse 10. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
rather than glorify God for this healing, what did they do? They interrogated the healed, the no longer disabled man. They remind the healed man of their practice of not carrying mats on the Sabbath, which is not made explicit from Scripture, but comes from the rabbinical tradition. The Jewish leaders are so devoted to the weights that they place on themselves and on others that they would rather express bitterness than to express thanksgiving, than to rejoice in the work of God and the life of this man. So the healed man responds. He tells them he didn't do this of his own accord. He did this because an unknown man healed him and told him to do so. The healed man was trying to avoid the ire of the Jewish leaders to get them off his back. And the man in this interaction with the Jewish leaders, what would happen is he experienced increasing pressure from the Jewish leaders. They were so bent on finding the mystery healer that they would stop at nothing to find out who this man was. They would not be satisfied. The healed man couldn't shake him off to the point that when he went to the temple, presumably to give thanksgiving to God, he encountered the Lord Jesus. And what did he do? He went back to the Jewish leaders and told them, that it was Jesus who told him to take up his mat and walk. Why would the man do this? Why would he go back to the Jews? And this brings us to an interesting section that we have to grapple with. In the temple, in verse 14, Jesus meets the man. He finds him again. And he acknowledges that the man has been made well. But then the following words come from him. Listen to these words here. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Is this some sort of threat? What is the Lord meaning to say here? Jesus is making clear the significance of the man's healing. What we spoke about, the offer of rest, a manifestation of the kingdom of God, descending from heaven to earth in that moment. Jesus is telling him, as a recipient of this blessing that's associated with the kingdom of God, this means you must be a citizen of the kingdom of God. You cannot receive the benefits without being a rightful citizen of this kingdom. This is a call to faith and repentance for his sins. And thus, as, as Herman Ritterboss notes, the, the worst thing that would then befall the healed man is not just the worst illness. It's not just an accident, but it is nothing less than the judgment of God. And so what to make of this man's response, him going back to the Jews, is made a little complicated. In reading commentaries across the centuries, there are three kind of overarching interpretations of what's going on here. They, some might say that the man was clearly antagonistic towards Jesus. Others would say the man was clearly naive. And then others yet would say that the man was clearly supportive 
of Jesus. None of these choices seem clear to me. We must not be careful, we must be careful, excuse me, in not stating something that our passage does not state. But I think we are given insight into this man's response to Christ when we consider the response of another man who was healed. The blind man, a blind man in John 9. And if you read these stories in parallel, and I encourage you to do that perhaps tonight, perhaps sometimes throughout the week, you're going to see repeating words, phrases, themes between John 5 and the healing in John 9. And what happens with the blind man who is healed in John 9? Well, there is no doubt as to where that man's loyalty lies. It lies with Jesus. The blind man who was healed was interrogated by the Jews as well. His parents were interrogated by the Jews, and his parents wanted nothing to do with them. They wanted to remain in the synagogue. But the blind man who was healed defended Jesus. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of the Jews. And what happened to him? He was kicked out of the synagogue. Ole Halsby, in a classic book on prayer, he, he provides, I, I think, an insightful analysis of what is happening with the lame man who was healed in John 5. He writes, The unconverted accepts his help when it pertains to temporal things. But as soon as God offers spiritual help, the helpless person turns away and often flees from God in great terror. Such a person refuses to be converted. Upon hearing that it was Jesus that healed the man who was once bedridden, the Jews were filled with wrath. They were so devoted to the letter of the law, according to their interpretation, that the spirit of the law was rendered useless and even harmful. The leaders are no longer questioning the healed man, are they? They're now questioning Jesus. We will consider the reasons why they respond in this way as we focus our Lord in the passage. But John presents us with something interesting here. He gives us a foreshadowing in verse 18. Their persecution of Jesus will not be considered finished until it ends in death. And this brings us to our third and our final point, the Son of God. What we find in our passage this evening is a gradual intensification of the stakes with the high point in the last two verses of our passage. But first, just to summarize, what, what do we learn about Jesus in these, pass, in these verses here? We learn that Jesus is the giver of rest and we'll reflect on the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. It was because he offered rest to the once disabled man that he was met with fierce opposition. Why? Because he healed on the Sabbath. This is the, the, surface, level, the surface level reason as to why the Jews were filled with devilish rage against Jesus. And in response to the animosity, what does the Lord say? 
Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. In this statement that Christ made to the Jewish leaders, we find his justification, his defense for healing on the Sabbath. The young men of the first century would almost certainly be brought up into the family business. What do we find Peter and Andrew doing when Jesus calls them? They were fishing, as, his, as their father did, so they did. In a way, what Jesus is saying is that what I am doing is simply working in the family business. What my father has done, I will do. In this justification for healing, the Lord not only defends his healing on the Sabbath, but as I said, this is a surface-level reason. Jesus, in this statement, raises the stakes. He tells the Jews, this is not just a debate about the Sabbath, what we can do, what we can't do. This is about who has the ultimate and proper authority. And it is not you, Jewish leaders. Though we've heard so much about the Sabbath in this passage, this passage is about Jesus' identity. And he makes his identity known. He makes it clear in this statement by what he calls God in verse 17. My Father. In the majority of our text, we saw Jesus as the giver of rest. And in these last verses... Jesus reveals himself to be the eternal son of the Father when he uses relational language of God as he defended his authority to heal. He does not just say the Father. He says, my Father, my Father. For Jesus to call God his Father in this way, in this context, is in effect a proclamation of Christ himself as God. Jesus has the authority that God himself has, which is why he was able to heal on the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish leaders could have realized who they were speaking to at that moment. They could have responded by falling before the one who was in the beginning with God, who was in the beginning God, God in the flesh. But instead, their theological radars went off. What they heard was blasphemy. And yet, their theological radar couldn't have been further from the mark. The Jewish leaders could not see the truth in Jesus' statement because they were blind in their unbelief. The Jews were not only enraged at his so-called Sabbath breaking, but after Jesus' defense, Jesus was made public enemy number one a blasphemer, a blasphemer, a false teacher, a wicked man deserving of the worst possible punishment, death. And so what began as a defense of a healing on the Sabbath was the fuel used by the Jewish leaders to bring Christ to the cross. Our Lord's kindness would be met with persecution and our Lord on this earth would live a life of sorrow and a life of suffering 
and he would die in sorrow and in suffering as well. If we reflect further, however, Jesus' words in verse 17 is the defense not only of the Sabbath healing, but ultimately of an eternal healing. Though not stated in so many words in our text, Jesus' statement is not only his justification for healing, but for saving as well. How is the one who believes in Christ able to obtain eternal life? John 3.16 It is because the Lord Jesus is not just a man, but because he is true God and true man. In a narrative that reveals to us the intentions of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus and is followed by a lengthy defense of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the one who gives life to whom he wills, John 3, 21. What John is foreshadowing in verse 18 is the climax of this battle between the Pharisees and Jesus, between the seed of the serpent and the promised seed, the climax of which is the cross. The Jewish leaders will succeed in their persecution of the Son of God to the point of death. But in this death, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is able to accomplish a greater healing. The healing that our healing from the beginning of our passage points to today, a healing from sin, from its effects, from its guilt, and its power. In his death, he also presents a way to the heavenly country, that kingdom that he offered to the healed man as well. In his death at the hands of unjust men, he accomplishes for us a spiritual healing. And to that, we must say yes and amen. And to that, we must respond in faith. Because what he accomplished is available for you, is available for me today. If you do not know this Jesus, don't waste another moment of your life. Jesus is Lord and God. He is ruler over life and over death. Bow before him in repentance and in faith, and you will find life in him. May no one ever say of you that they were unsure as to where you stood with the Lord. May no one characterize your life as one that was crippled by the weight of sin and anger against God. But confess your neediness before the Lord. And in Him, you will find what you cannot provide for yourself. You will find eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. So to conclude... What Jesus offered the disabled man, he provides the same for us today. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one who knows you in your affliction, who knows you in your suffering. 
Just as he knew the man who was afflicted on his bed for 38 years, so he knows the pain and the sorrow that you go through that no one else does. Not only does he know it, but he does something about it. There is no deeper bond than the one that we have with Jesus Christ because he was acquainted with grief. He knows what it means to have suffered. He not only knows, but he did something about your suffering by dying on a cross and taking care of an even bigger problem than our suffering, which was our sin. And so what the Lord presents to the paralytic, he expresses to us a taste, a picture of the world to come. Spiritually, we are given new life. We are made citizens of the heavenly kingdom of God. And this comes only from the Lord Jesus, the giver of rest. And for those whose afflictions are bodily, there is good news for you too because there lies a greater healing for you in heaven. Cling to this promise by faith. This passage is good news for us because the Son of God, who was brokenhearted as he walked this earth, suffered on our behalf and overcame sin and death, pain and sorrow. His resurrection testifies to him being the true son of God. And thus, he no longer walks in sorrow, but from heaven, he provides you with comfort and eternal life. The son of God, Jesus Christ, is able and willing to heal and to save. Let us believe this and confess this together. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful for what you have done, for what you have said, for what you have accomplished. You are the true Son of God, the one who came as a man to die for men and women, for boys and girls, to free us from sin and its effects. And we thank you for that. Help us to grow spiritually, that we may see the picture of heaven that lies ahead of us, that we may cling to those glimpses, those foretastes by faith, that we may be encouraged in our walk. May your spirit continue to renew us after your image, invigorate us in our race, and encourage us to look to you the Son of God, who is risen and ascended and provides with us the comfort, the life, and forgiveness of sins that no one else can. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. Let us respond together by singing number 295, Crown Him with Many Crowns.
ready to turn around the life of this man in a moment uh, to totally change the direction of his whole life blesses us this evening also with that authority. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.